Well, I have to say, today is one of my favourite moments of the year because it's this time where I get to stop, sit down, have a cup of tea in hand and revisit some of my favourite conversations of the past 12 months. And this year, I have spoken to some truly exceptional and inspirational founders, true visionaries who inspire me personally as I navigate my own business journey. As entrepreneurs, your learning is never done. It never stops. And that's part of its true magic of this path less travelled. Surrounding yourself with new ideas, knowledge, creative approaches to problems is all in our blood. We're magnets to it. But hearing the individual stories from founders of some of the UK's best-known brands it's tonic for the soul. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not on the High Street for my kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co., I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to Dell Technologies, who've helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Later on, we'll be hearing from Bobby Brown and Sir John Timpson to name just two. But I wanted to start with David Hyatt, a man who I think will have inspired many of you through his book collection, The Do Books. An entrepreneur who's always been ahead of his time, he now runs the brand Hyatt Denham. And it's his deep understanding of brand that fascinates me. His utter belief in the intrinsic tie between human connection and brand. I love this entire conversation and it showed me I have so much still to learn. I am just a student and I'm also lucky enough to be collecting all these insights for us to soak up. Some brands make you feel something and they take you on a journey that you want to go on. They want to change something that is important to you. They become a little bit or a little part of you is them and you are in that tribe and it's an incredible thing because people don't give their attachment to many things you know whether it's a mm -hmm. they're probably only going to have one sports team they're probably mostly only going to have one partner but in terms of brands they'll have a few but they have to mean something and, and I think the most special ones make you feel something, not just buy something. I think that's just, oh, the, the relationship called a long card number. And if you flip the card, there's a short number. And that's not the relationship most, well, most brands are after that relationship. But there's some brands, they take you from this journey from like your, your head to your heart. It's only 18 inches, but most brands never, ever take you there. And it's extraordinary when they do. Why don't, why don't, when, in this day and age, our marketing teams or directors or boards or founders, why aren't they waking up to that emotional connection? The best brands are run by humans, but most brands are run by boards, committees, and, and that's a pretty tough gig. And if I give you the example, because I know this example well, is Adidas was the biggest sports brand in the world. This Young upstart Nike started with, they were on their knees for 10 years, had no money, like had no huge big investors, but they could communicate and actually make you feel something about sport. Sport happens to be deeply emotional. And so they wanted to talk to your heart and, and Adidas wanted to talk to your head, logic. Mostly, when you're building a brand, emotion is much more powerful than logic. Do you think it's a superpower that actually small businesses could harness by very nature in an easier way than big businesses? Yes. 
Because if you think about it, you don't have to go and do a research group. You don't have to go and convince the board. Mm. You don't have to like go and play politics to get 10 people to your way of thinking. You're like a speedboat and they're an ocean liner. And so they take an awful long time to turn around and you're a speedboat. And it's almost a duty for small, you know, like little, you know, one man, two man, you know, two women band you know, companies to, to be emotional. And you think, oh, you have a disadvantage because you're small. You have an advantage because you're small. I mean, what a man. I knew he would be, but I wasn't quite prepared for just how inspiring that interview would be. A true visionary and his statement that as small businesses, we have a duty to be emotional. It really struck me and is one I really urge you to take on board and consider how you can bring that thinking into your own brand, into your own dream. So on the topic of brand, the next conversation I wanted to revisit was with someone who I greatly admire. In fact, this interview felt like a once in a lifetime opportunity to speak to someone who is consistently pushing boundaries, creating products and campaigns which seek to tap into a higher purpose. The one and only Anya Hindmarsh. Anya shared so much in our time together from making ordinary everyday objects totally extraordinary, including my prawn cocktail wedding handbag the team so kindly gave me, to building a brand as a mum of five. But what I think stands out is Anya's commitment to using her brand as a force to make change, turning fashion into a vehicle for a higher purpose. So I was fascinated to hear her story of the plastic bag. Your brand is just something that is quite phenomenal. Princess Diana became a devoted fan of your work amongst many other people and countless big fashion moments ever since. I want to talk about your I'm Not a Plastic Bag turning into becoming your now unbelievable I Am a Plastic Bag. This is my first entry point with you when the it bag, you know, the 2007, it was all about the it bags. And you created a tote, which was, I am not a plastic bag. It was five pounds and it was a global sensation. It was a collaboration with the social change movement shift and it ignited the debate of plastic bags around the world. The queues in the cities around the world, am I right in saying that Sainsbury sold something like 80,000 bags on launch day. It had 80,000 people queue in one day. That was what was kind of scary about it. Oh my goodness. Okay, that's even more. But now you must be so proud because you're, in a way, you've gone full circle and now you've done it again with I am a plastic bag. Can you tell me about this and what the response has been? I mean, it's been an amazing project. I mean, it's been amazing because actually I've just, I've learned so much and um, I mean, it's been hard as well at times because it's, you know, it's a huge amount of R&D and, and um, it gets quite political when you when you sort of dig into the sphere, as you can imagine. But I mean, the, the, the initial project, I'm not a plastic bag, had a very simple aim, which was to try and make people think twice about taking single-use plastics. It was about awareness. Mm-hmm. I mean, awareness it got. It was absolutely unbelievable. I mean, it really was. And, and you know, 80,000 people in, in the UK and then on and on around the world. I was locked up in a basement in Tokyo because they were scared for my safety, which seemed ridiculous. But it was, you know, it was of that sort of level of, of madness. And I think 30 people went to hospital in Taiwan because there was a stampede. Um, it closed an entire shopping mall. So not proud of that. And we stopped it immediately after that. But it was it was an amazing vehicle for awareness and, and for debate around this, the subject. We did it. It made a difference. It really did make a difference. I mean, I think the numbers of... Mm. Single-use plastic bags, according to the British Retail Consortium, went from nine point something billion to six point something billion in a year. Not, of course, just us, because lots of people then, you know, really got involved as well. But it really did spark a debate. So I felt super proud of that project. Really complicated to do, not not easy at all. Fraught with difficulty, and we learned along the way as well. But it was great. Um, so we so went back to normal life and carried on doing what we do for for our day jobs. But then in 2020, all those years later, that, that fabulous 2020 that we've all just experienced, <laughs> I felt that. Uh, well, there was one something I'd heard that was rattling around my brain, which was when you throw something away, there is no away. Oh, wow. It really is that scary thought that, you know, 
everyone, frankly, should go and see a landfill site. Every single child in the country should actually visit a landfill site to realise what we all do. I always remember thinking, if you were to throw something away that couldn't be recycled and you had to bury it in your own garden, you would soon become overwhelmed with plastic rubbish in your garden and it would be horrible and you would just stop taking it. But because we're so disconnected from a landfill site, we're not realising that those huge mm-hmm. banks of, of plastic and stuff that's that's sitting you know, being buried in in the land is hard. We should stop it immediately. So I wanted to revisit the project, but with a different aim, really. So it wasn't just about awareness anymore, clearly. It was about how can we keep in circulation the 8 billion tonnes of plastic that are currently on the planet? How can we actually not do what we're doing now, which is take something, buy something, use it for too short a period and then put it into landfill, then buy something else and use it for too short a period and put it into landfill? How can we actually take something that was about to go into landfill, stop it going to landfill, use it again, make it into something beautiful and keep it in circulation, hopefully being used again or sold on and reused, but just avoid the landfill. So we we don't just amass all this stuff that we don't do with. So we spent two years developing this um, fabric, which was complicated to do because we wanted to make something really beautiful. It was like a a lovely cotton Mm. drill, but made out of plastic we recovered and that we broke down into little pellets and then we melted and we we spun and we weave into fabric. Uh, And it behaved, in fact, so much like a cotton drill that we wanted to coat one side of it because it got dirty. So we wanted to coat it with a a sort of a, a, a coating, but we managed to find... The plastic they put between glass windscreens, which stops the glass shattering in cars, um, which is called PVB. And we managed to reclaim that, which would have gone to landfill and to use that on the coating as the coating on one side of the bag. So it was an amazing project, really complicated to do. Wow. Yeah. And we called it I Am a Plastic Bag because, of course, it's made of plastic. But it's a beautiful thing. So it's how can you take waste and make it in something beautiful. Mm. And so we launched that, was it February now? February 2020. And to launch it, we felt to connect people to this thing in my head about all the rubbish in my garden that, that I would have to plant in my garden. We actually closed all of our stores in London and we emptied them and we filled them with 90,000 used plastic bottles. I love this. Which is probably why I got COVID, I think, because we had to find a lot of plastic bottles. We were literally going up and down the Eurostar, putting them all into a bag and taking them. <laughs> the whole company was was challenged and charged with trying to find these bottles. And we managed to get 90,000, which was eight minutes of landfill. Oh, my goodness. Just to give people a sense of scale. And it was really interesting. So we filled all of our London stores overnight with these these bottles, which, you know, came up like water, like sort of tied line, almost up to the to the ceiling. Mm. And people were climbing over them to try and sort of, you know, get out the door and, and, and close the door and leave all the bottles in. I think it was part protest, if you like, and part almost art installation. But mm. sir, it served, I think, to connect people to how disgusting it is. Uh, and people were stopping and looking and taking photographs and were kind of shocked by it. So I think it was a lovely project to really connect people to this problem, saying, now we need to talk about circularity materials. We can't carry on like this. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it's been really fascinating, honestly. And um, and as, as you can tell, a, a real passion project and, and, and hilarious, yeah. given that my dad was, I think, one of the first people, or was the first person <laughs> to invent the plastic flower pot. So it goes full circle. <laughs> Anya is just the most phenomenal example of making a statement with your brand. And my goodness, it's never more relevant than now. Quite incredible that she was championing the plastic-free movement so long ago. I think we will see more and more brands use their businesses in this way. It was something that Edward Perry, the founder of Cook, said to me some time ago, that the only way to truly change the world is through business. Later in the podcast, Anya talks about success being a patchwork of failures. And I can hear you smiling as I know this will really resonate with you. And it's something that my next guest also feels hugely passionate about. Jake Humphrey, who many of you will know as a sports broadcaster and may even remember him from his children's BBC days, joined as my next guest and he started by sharing his ethos about taking 100% responsibility for your life and recognising the hard yards it can take to get there. When we sit here now and trace back to those days growing up in Norwich and all of these little, what seem at the time like very small, almost insignificant moments that happened to you, you realise that actually what you're doing there, you're building the evidence that years later I talk about on a podcast. I mean, I did a video this new year about 100% responsibility. Instead of a New Year's resolution, take 100% responsibility for every part of your life. And actually, let's if we explore that now, 
we go back to the bullying. Mm. Fault versus responsibility, right, Holly? So many things will happen to everyone listening to this. They just simply will that are not their fault. Mm. And it's actually a bit shit, but the truth is it's still your responsibility because it doesn't matter what those things are. If you don't take responsibility, you're just giving up control and therefore... Everything's gone. You can't make it happen. Everything's gone. So the bullying, definitely not my fault. Still my responsibility to actually work out a way forwards. Failing my A-levels, maybe you could argue it was my fault. <laughs> Come on, get your way out of that one. All right, yeah. <laughs> but still, my responsibility yeah. to go back to school and find a way at, at Rapture TV. And then this little moment that happened with Holly, not my fault, still my responsibility to get my way onto Saturday morning television. And then I have this meeting mm-hmm. where you're totally right. I'd spent the morning hosting a game show in the Blue Peter Garden called Mobster Lobster, where I dress up as a pink lobster and I wear these huge pink claws. <laughs> And I'm six foot four, by the way, and I don't move in an elegant manner. And I had these big pins sticking out the claws. And I was running around the Blue Peter Garden popping balloons while there was a caller live on the phone. And if it was a big starfish inside the balloon, they got 10 points. If it was a small starfish, they got five points. So Mobster Lobster came up in conversation with the person who I was discussing an opportunity at BBC Sport with. And even though we're talking about 12, 13 years ago, they were much more straight-laced than they are now. It was almost inconceivable that they would look at someone hosting Mobster Lobster and think, yeah, we'll put him on a World Cup final or an Olympic Games or something. (laughs) But that's what and where I felt I should be. So again, it became not my fault, but my responsibility. So I then went through quite a tricky period and probably, I almost don't like saying it because it makes me sound like a bit of a dick, but if I look at my career since I started, it feels like a permanent upward trajectory. Probably the biggest period of questioning if this is working for me and whether it's right was when I went to see a guy called Niall Sloan who was the head of football and I said look I've been told it's not going to happen for me but I'd love to just prove you wrong and show that I'm willing to put the work in whatever it takes and they gave me an ISDN kit and I used to get paid I think it was £100 on a Saturday I would do a show called Sports Round live on BBC One in the morning and then I would collect my ISDN kit. Mm-hmm. I was used to working with producers and cameramen and other people to write my scripts and going into a makeup room. And I was like getting stopped in the street by young kids. You feel in the world of children's BBC like you're David Beckham, right? So you feel like you've got to a certain <laughs> point in your career. Yeah, you feel like you've earned this 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 moment where you're like you're up here. Yeah. And then suddenly I'm putting this ISDN kit in the back of the car. I'm driving to fourth and third division football matches. I'm finding my way in, parking in a car park, who knows where, trudging down the road, walking into a press room, and I was plugging my ISDN kit in and I was dialing it all up myself, totally on my own, ringing in. Then a goal would go in. And I knew I was, you know, Gillingham against crew or something. So I'd go, hi, Jake Humphrey here, Gillingham against crew, there's been a goal. (laughs) And the producer at the other end in Broadcasting House in London would say, okay, stand by, we'll come to you if we need to. And then I wouldn't hear anything for 20 minutes. And then another goal would go in and I would write my report for 20 seconds, press the button, say, it's Jake Humphrey here, there's been another goal at Gillingham against Crew. <laughs> and this is, Holly, we're talking here about 2008, by the way, not that long ago. <laughs> okay, yeah, we'll come to you if we need to. And then I would sit there. I might get on once if I was lucky, sometimes never at all, load my gear up, get back in the car, drive myself home, And I remember saying to Harriet at the time, I'm just not sure, man, that this is leading anywhere. I feel like it's great for them because they're getting me sort of relatively cheaply. Yeah. I don't see the benefit to me. And that is the one time I think I've totally underestimated the importance of uh, getting my wings and doing things on the quiet and proving a work ethic to other people. You know, expecting it all to come instantly is, is a fool's game. And I can't quite leave Jake there because he gave some of the most simple and yet incredible advice that helped so many people, even some very close to me. I won't story steal, though. Here's Jake in his own words. I think one of the biggest lows, you know, I love the fact that one of my first bosses gave me a piece of advice, never sit in the comfy chair. And it is, it's on the gym wall in our house and it makes us laugh because every time our daughter, our rather bombastic, full-of-life daughter comes down, she gives me a face and goes... Why do you say I can't sit in the comfy chair, Daddy? (laughs) She hates that phrase. But Adam Stanhope said this to me really early on in my career. When I was at Rapture TV, I said, look, I feel I want to leave and go and pursue other opportunities in London. And he said, listen, I'm not going to stand in your way because my advice to everyone is never sit in the comfy chair. And when BT Sport came and offered me the opportunity to leave the BBC and go to 
set up a new channel with them, it was the very first thing that came into my head when I got the offer was, right, I don't sit in the comfy chair. And it was an uncomfy chair because I remember walking into BT Sport on the very first day and there were six people sat around a table and that was the entirety of the BT Sport setup. I'd left the most famous, oldest, most successful broadcaster in the world to join six people sitting around a table. Yeah. So to take it to where we have to this day is one of the greatest satisfactions that I have in my career. Someone else who certainly didn't sit in the comfy chair is Dame Jessica Ennis-Hill. Determination, dedication and a focus to find her extraordinary life. Jessica is now a founder and building her own business in the next era of her career. Here she shares with us the self-belief it took to get her where she is today. I felt tugged in so many ways and I felt the kind of pressure of wanting to do well on the track, but I still wanted to see my friends. I still wanted to have a social life. And Mm. yeah, there was plenty of times where I had to kind of sit back and think about the sacrifices that I had to make at that time for the long term. And also it was, you know, a huge risk. There was no guarantees that I would be a successful athlete. I wouldn't get injured and I'd be successful for many years. No one was guaranteeing that for me. So it was always a huge, huge gamble and something that can be quite stressful at the time when you're you're growing up and and everything's changing so much and you know you you're expected to make all these big decisions about university and and your life and your future so yeah I did find it quite challenging through those years what made you because I'm just thinking about myself actually at that age what made you dedicate yourself to this did you have in your heart uh as you went on during the years, you must have then started maybe to have some focuses and some goals that you wanted to get to. Did that then become sort of a way of life? I think I always had huge focus in what I did, even from a young age. And that inner ability to, if I focused on something and set a target for myself or something that I wanted to achieve, whether it was training a certain number of times a week or get into a competition at English schools or a South Yorkshire championships or whatever it might be, I kind of had that ability to just like knuckle down and keep really focused and keep driving towards it. And I never... It was almost a failure to myself if I Mm. didn't continue. So I always had that kind of internal pressure that I would put on myself to keep going till I got to where I needed to be. And I think I had that from a very young age. You had your blinkers on and you were focused in on something. And that is quite a gift. I was just going to say, I think as I got older, I I started to understand the uniqueness of what I was kind of starting out to achieve. And as I got older, I saw that, you know, making these small sacrifices along the way would have a bigger impact on on me as an athlete and my life in the long term. And I suppose as I started to understand that, it made it easier and my drive was just so honed into, Mm. you know, purely focusing on, on making sure that I achieved those goals and those dreams. It is not an understatement to say that Bobby Brown was one of the main reasons we even started a podcast. My co-founder Gabby had heard her story, realised that so many more people needed to hear it, and so Conversations of Inspiration was born. I've now interviewed over 130 founders, and this year I finally got to interview this formidable woman. All of us will know the name Bobby Brown, but far fewer of us will know her story. And alongside the lessons they impart, I believe that hearing the journey of these incredible founders firsthand gives us all a dose of inspiration to believe that we too can follow our dreams and change the world in our own way. So here is Bobby taking us back to 1980 and the very first days of building what would go on to become an iconic brand worldwide. First of all, when I landed in New York City, I wasn't a makeup artist. I wanted to be a makeup artist. I didn't know what it meant to be a makeup artist. I waitressed a year after college, which I recommend to people because I knew I could support myself. And when I arrived in New York, I didn't know anyone. I didn't have a portfolio except pictures of myself and my brothers and sisters that I would make up. And I just opened up the yellow pages and looked up modeling agencies, models. I made a lot of calls and I started learning what I needed to do to be a makeup artist. I wanted to be hired. I called makeup artists and eventually I started working, not getting paid a lot of money, but at least I started 
you know, meeting people and doing things, assisting. I'd meet the assistant editor. And eventually I did become a freelance makeup artist. And it was a struggle because I wasn't doing the kind of makeup that was very popular that people expected you to do. Mm. So I started doing this thing, which was making a foundation match the skin. Okay. You know, that was like controversial at the time. And it it didn't exist. Well, first of all, it didn't exist. There was no foundation that matched people's skin. So I had to mix and blend things to get it to look natural. I had an eye for it. So I figured it out. And I wanted, when I put a blush on, I wanted it to blend on the cheeks. Like, and that didn't exist. So I didn't realize there was an opportunity then. But I also would try to find a lipstick that looked like the model's lips. That didn't, I mixed and blended. And then one day I was at a shoot and there was a chemist who told me about these lipsticks he was making. And I said, I had an idea. Could you make this for me? And I told him and back and forth we sent it. And I finally ended up with a color that was the color of my lips. And I thought, oh my God, this is revolutionary. I bet I could sell this. I didn't realize that everyone has different color lips. So the one that looks like natural on my lips would probably be orange or dark on your lips. So then I started thinking about all my friends, all my models, nannies I knew from other countries, and I started thinking about all their lips, and I made a color for each of the lips. That's how I started. And it was, I just, it's just unbelievable, really, to think. Someone also asked if they could write, um, is that right, in Glamour magazine. They asked if they could write about your lipstick collection. And you were like, why would you want to do that? And now you sort of realise, what well, that's called PR. Yeah. And you actually put your home phone number in this article. I mean, this really does show you, you know, where you were coming from. It was such a, you know, I always say naivety is the most beautiful thing when creating a business. Yeah. You know, when it's just so pure and innocent and actually you go into places that you wouldn't do now necessarily. I don't know, Holly. I am still as naive. I'm smarter, but I'm very naive. I don't think things aren't going to work out. And if they don't work out, it's just for me a message to do it differently. Bobby was just so open and honest. If you haven't heard her googly eyes story, do go and listen back to her episode. It was certainly something that resonated with all the mums here at Holly & Co. We're working with our partners at Dell Technologies to empower small businesses across the UK with the tools and knowledge they need to thrive. Every week, we bring you the Small Business Pharmacy Live to help you navigate your business journey, covering a huge range of topics. Here I am talking to Samantha Rank as she explains the need for small businesses to be more inclusive for disabled people and how they can do so. The more I understand and learn about unconscious bias, the more I say you need to leave your ego at the door. And what I mean by that is if someone says to you, that was ableist, that was sexist, I prefer you use this term instead of that term, they are not berating you. They are not there to make you feel better. They're actually calling you to to change. They call they it's a call for action. It's a call for you to say actually, what what would you prefer? Let me hear your story. Let me understand why that is offensive or why I need to use these words instead of these words. The only way we're actually going to have a huge cultural shift is if everybody just goes, okay, I'm not being attacked. I'm not being attacked. I don't, you know, put, yes. put, that, put that to one side. It isn't about, it isn't about that. For the latest lessons, advice and insights, join me every Wednesday at midday live on my Instagram. You can also visit holly.co slash hub for my business advice hub, a free online resource thanks to Dell Technologies filled with content from myself and some of our small business community, sharing lessons from our journeys to help you navigate yours. And with a continued commitment to empower you, every week, Dell are giving away one tech in a box. For a chance to win a brand new XPS laptop and a whole host of other goodies, head to holly.co slash get involved with thanks to Dell Technologies. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. (music) 
So from Bobby in the US to simply extraordinary Sir John Timpson in the UK, CEO of the family-owned business Timpson. It's still a fully family-owned business and family sits at the heart of the brand. His views on the high street and its future, his passionate championing of supporting prisoners through the business and the lessons he's learned through fostering over 90 children with his late wife, Alex. He's simply like no one else I've spoken to before. Awe-inspiring and visionary, his approach to business, I think, is one we should all adopt. So here is Sir John sharing his approach to management, his innovative approach to hiring, and three lessons that every founder should know. Everyone wears a badge which says they're part of the family, and uh, it says only part of the family since whatever the date is they joined. And that's the way we treat it, because... I mean, our success totally depends on the people who work for us. I mean, they, the business create, gets its turnover by people in shops providing a service for the customers. So everything we do is aimed at supporting the people who support the customers. Yeah, That's why we think people are at the centre of everything we are doing. And it, that leads me on to this. I mean, when I heard this, and I know you've, you've spoken about it out in the big wide world, but it has just literally stuck with me as a businesswoman. You've revolutionised management and famously coined the phrase upside down management. Um, could you tell me, Uh, for those who are listening who haven't heard about this, more about this concept because this blew my mind and I have literally had you pinned up, John, on my wall ever since hearing about this. So it would be my honour to hear it firsthand. Okay. well, it all came about about 25 years ago. So, I mean, it's not new. We've been doing it a long time. And it comes from what we've already talked about, that uh, our success really depends on the quality of the service we provide our customers. That's the key. And the way to give a great service, the way to give an exceptional service, the only one way to do it, you don't do it through lots of training courses and, and telling people how, what phrases they should use. The only way to do it is to give the people who serve the customers the freedom to do it the way they want. Mm-hmm. So that's the start of it. And I've seen since that, that was absolutely the right call, that people who have got are trusted with the freedom to serve customers the way they want will give some exceptional service. But then it, it was a question of freeing them up. And uh, so we had a lot of things to overcome. We had to uh, tackle the problem of our middle management, particularly the area managers. We said, how can I do my job if I'm not allowed to tell people what to do? Yes. Uh, which, I, I mean, I couldn't understand the point, but uh, we had to actually encourage people, train people to, that you can ru- do your job, you can run a team without telling people in the team what to do because your job is to actually support the people in the team and c- cut away, cut out any obstacles that get in their way of doing a great job. That's what you're, what you're helping them to do the very best job they can do. And then we realised that we, like everyone else, was very much a ho- head office Base business that uh, everyone out there in the field believed that head office could tell them what to do and everyone in the head office thought they ran the business and issued orders. So we, we had to change all that round. And uh, so now uh, people, who, we don't call it head office anymore, but uh, those people who are not in the shops are there to support the people who are, not to tell them how to do the job. Right. So we cut out all their thoughts of policy and process. Uh, we don't send out standing orders of telling people exactly how to do the job. We're just trying to do everything we can to give people out there in the shops the freedom to do things the way they want. We have two rules, only two rules. You've got to look the part and put the money in the till. Beyond that, right. you can do whatever you like. Charge charge what you want, put whatever you like in the shop window. You can paint the shop whatever colour you want. I don't care. It's, it, if, it, if that's what you think's right, then I'm, I'm behind you. And it, we've Gradually, gradually, we discovered how to do it, and we discovered the biggest bonus of this. There is one key little bit which is terribly important. It only works with the right people. Right. And so, for the last twenty-five years, we've just been we've just been hiring people with personality. We want Mrs. Key, Mrs. Bright, Mrs. Happy, Mrs. Talkative, whatever, and we don't want Mr. Grumpy, Mr. Scruffy, Mrs. Mrs. Slow. 
they're the people who don't help you in business. So I hope when you go to one of our shops now, you're going to meet a, a character, a personality yes. who can talk who can talk to you. We're going to go on to the Mr. Men characters, Mr. and Mrs. characters, but... You know, now we talk about, don't we, these words, you know, authenticity and uh, it's about people and actually, um, you know, when we're looking at a world that's going into automization and all these sorts of, you know, the human character is so important. Now, these are things that you recognised a long time ago and was willing to build a model around this and I'm sure you know so many businesses now are taking inspiration with what you've done would you say for someone who wants to be that maverick to change things up I've got to say am I right in thinking it didn't land on your plate you know you haven't got it right from day one that this is actually something you have sort of a vision of how you want to lead a business and then it's iterations and it and it sort of evolves no it it took five years to really get the thing to start to bed down, and, then, and another the last twenty years, it's just get, it just gets stronger every year because it it's almost a cult, it's a religion in our business, and everyone understands what upside down management about. That's the culture, yeah. And I think everyone enjoys the fact that everyone else they're working with has got it as well. They understand it, and uh, and if they don't, if, if we've got someone who isn't right for the business they actually try and encourage them to ask them to find their happiness elsewhere because that's not, there's nothing worse than asking someone who's really great, understands what we're about, to work alongside someone who gets in the way. So that's all, all yeah. part of clearing obstacles out, I'm afraid. Part of clearing obstacles. And, and do you think that um, when we think about who's listening to this podcast today, you know, small businesses, founders, do you think there's something that they can learn specifically about what you're talking about, about this ultimately human connection, mm. emotional connection? It's, it, is it an area that you think maybe independent businesses can win at? Oh, certainly. I mean, I, I think uh, one, of, one of the great pluses an independent business has is they are closer to the customer than someone who's working in a head office. Yeah. They, are, they are in there, in the business with the people. I, uh, but I... Quite often asked by people setting up a business or the start of their business career as to what are the what are the most important things they should remember, and I generally say, uh, watch the cash, make sure you, you're you're looking at the bank yep. account every day, and also uh, make sure you've got the right people. And then, what mistakes you most make? Well, the biggest problem you've got is hanging on for people who aren't good enough for too long. Everyone will tell you that over the years, that how many times you you give them a second, third, and fourth chance. Oh, yes. Because, because you can't face it. You, it's a difficult job anyway. Th- those are three things to start with, and uh, they're very often, I can give you that for a starter, and they're lessons you, in the ordinary event, might not learn for two or three years when it comes back and bites you. I don't know why, but each time I'm astounded at how generous founders are with their insights. I think sometimes we're all still so conditioned to think that business is a dark art that is a secret not to be shared. And yet here are some of the most successful founders in the UK sharing everything they know to be true. So I'm slightly cringing at this next part. How on earth do you follow Sir John Timpson? But Harriet, my right-hand woman, was insistent that we should include my own podcast in this Christmas roundup. It was a momentous episode for us as a team, our hundredth episode. It was very surreal to be on the other side, so to speak, and hearing my mum share some of her memories and have close friends and amazing members of this community asking me questions I've never been asked before. Well, it was quite an experience. But there was one part of this podcast that seems to have resonated with so many of you, and that is my Harry sharing his own experience as someone who has grown up with a female founder as his mum, and my husband, now husband, Frank, revealing what his experience taking on the role of stay-at-home dad was like. I know so many of us in this community are blessed to have our children and are also consumed by the guilt of feeling that you aren't present enough or you're failing them in some way. 
It's a journey I've been on myself. I look back now and I wish I could have shared the words Harry does in this extract with the younger Holly, the Holly who allowed so much of her energy to be consumed by guilt. So, for any of you listening to this who are experiencing those same feelings of guilt, this clip is for you. So, Harry, I wanted to ask you, what are the earliest memories, I suppose, of me having my own business and not being that typical mum? Um, If I'm honest with you, the whole thing never really bothered me that you weren't here. It never really bothered me because I feel like if you look at it from a traditionalistic perspective that the dad would normally be away and the mum would normally be the stay-at-home mum. And I don't think that that ever bothered me, that the genders were, were switched. Yeah, I mean, I can only remember until about the age of 10 onwards that, you know, it was, it was my rugby matches and my sports days that I'd be going to with my dad. And I think that he had a big also part to play in the sense that he never made it weird. Not that it was weird, but he never made it, you know, weird that mum wasn't here uh, for a lot of my fixtures and stuff which had its uh, benefits because I don't think my mum fully understood what rugby was and you'd probably get right, run on the pitch, quite probably. defensive, yeah. I don't think it ever really bothered me because I think I understood that it was just normal and that, you know, one parent had to work and for me that was just my mum. That's interesting because a lot of things that we discuss in this community is about parental guilt. But from your point of view, you just thought, well, one parent normally works or two parents normally work. So when you look back at this period of our life nearly 10 years ago, Frank, you weren't necessarily happy in your job. Yeah. So we put all the chips, I suppose, if we were betting yes. on not on the high street. What are your memories of that time? Because it was a seriously more turbulent time, wouldn't you say, that decade? It was a massive decision for me to make. Um, I'd been in my job for over, what was it, 22 years so it was something that I really needed to give a lot of thought and consideration to. Well, I worked in counterterrorism, so it was a pretty serious job I had. But it was also, you know, it was really quite a stressful environment um, because, you know, you, had, you were making decisions that basically, you know, if you didn't get them right, it could have serious consequences. The trouble was the environment as well was also, it was a very stressful sort of political place to work up at, up at the yard. So... We had a couple of nannies that definitely weren't working at one in particular that wasn't really paying attention to Harry one day. Just as he started walking, he had literally just started toddling around <laughs> and he was on top of the slide and she wasn't really looking at him and he fell off and broke his leg. Yeah, I think that uh, was just a coming moment, up to Halloween. It? That so, was a sort of yeah, bit of sort a crunch of time for defining, us. It was a defining moment that basically, you know, you were trying to get the company up and running. I pretty much had my job up to the neck. So, you know, I took that decision to basically leave and to take on the, the mummy role. And, you know, I must admit, I found it really hard um, to adjust, you know, coming from, you know, what was a very very strange environment into another environment dealing with the playground mums, which uh, also involved a lot of my previous skills, <laughs> working between the different groups of mums, which was uh, quite daunting to say the least. You were one of two dads in the whole playground. Yes, exactly. You know, so yeah. you, it was just a different time. After a while, I found it really interesting just observing, you know, how people interact and different groups of people interact. Um, but I must, you know, I have to admit that, you know, I did find it hard to adjust, but um, I've also found it like one of the most rewarding times of my life. You know, to look at Harry and to see how he has benefited from having me there because I feel sorry for a lot of dads that weren't able to be there for their sons and had to provide for their families. So I was in a really privileged position to be able to do that for Harry. Yeah, he's turned out not too bad so far. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the honest truth is, isn't it? It's like, I think there's another book in that, which is the adjustment of roles, you know, when they do change. It's not for the faint-hearted, is it? Truth it definitely that. rocked mm. our <clears throat> worlds mm. and... um that is just a really interesting topic, one for an entirely new podcast. I sort of remember also the playground, you know, having to fake phone calls when mm -hmm. I'd pick you up, Harry. I don't know if you knew that. No, and know. as no one really mm -hmm. spoke to me in the playground because Daddy did all the picking up mm -hmm. and I had no friends in the playground. So I would just pretend to speak to people on the phone because I was so nervous to stand in the playground because I was the working woman mm. and and no one really came up to me and and maybe me being on the phone made me totally unapproachable but I didn't think like that at the time you know we do consume ourselves with guilt Harry I'm telling you now forget just the sports things but just when you don't think you're there enough you're watching a bit too much tv because I'm working or those listening are working and the kids are downstairs and you're like oh, I'm gonna mess them up forever what do you think as a 16 um, year old yeah yeah big 16 um 
you know, the best I could probably say is just don't feel that guilt. I don't feel like there's a need for you to to feel that guilt. And, you know, I, I can understand that as a parent, you might just be completely overwhelmed with it. But I think, as, you know, as your child gets older, they'll realise that, you know, you're providing and you're doing what you need to do. And then in a way, I feel like it's more special because the the time that you have with them, which which might be a lot and might be a little, is just, you know, all, all the more precious. And saying this now, it's actually coming, you know, it's all making sense why my mum would nag me to get off the TV and to stop playing video games and to do stuff. And it, it, it's probably because she felt that she almost needed to be there for me. And then when she was there for me, she had to be there for me, if that makes any sense. But Yeah, um, I didn't want you to be on screen. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But do you also think that maybe you've realised for all the times that you were little, little, and, you know, I was there for every bedtime, you know, that was a real mm, key thing mm. that I might then go and work again when I came home, but I was always there for your bedtime. Do you now see that maybe it's sort of like a lifestyle, isn't it, in our house, my job? It's oh, yeah. not like yeah, I'm an yeah, insurance yeah. broker, do you know what I mean? And I go and do this yeah. and I come home and you just say, yeah. hey, mum, hey, and that's it. Like, it's our lives. Yeah, so I think I've grown a lot more accustomed to the fact that your job is quite interactive and social. And you saying that it's sort of like, it, it's sort of obvious to me. It just shows how much it is intertwined in our lives that Holly and Co and the thing that you do is just, it's almost like a given. It's almost like, I, I don't I don't feel like I separate it from... Life. From work life and home life, which is always something that you say is what we should combine. My my friends don't exactly have parents that, that will that have such creative jobs. You know, some of them are bankers and stuff. And I feel like there's not that much connection between children and parents. And I feel like it's harder to connect. Whereas at least I can ask you now and, you know, how your day was. And you can tell me and I'm always up to date. And, you know, I can go to the shop and I'm always sort of in, in the loop of what's going on. You can listen to the podcast. It's yeah. the 100th one I haven't listened to. It is, yeah. But um, having the job that you do, it's, it's almost like a part of our life and I don't really see it. And it, as anything, it's, it's alien to me to think of it as, as something that would be separate, which I feel like is what you should sort of strive for, is that your job is a part of your life. And so actually for those listening, there's a 16-year-old who... I thought I would absolutely mess up. I, you know, I was, I cried on Sophie's shoulders when Frank told me that you'd walked and I'd missed it. And I honestly thought, because I'd wanted you for all my life, you know, Harry, I've wanted you since forever. Mm. And so to miss those fundamental stages, I really thought potentially this was going to be terrible for you. But now you're 16 and you're telling me, actually, I love our lives because your job is in our lives, you know, and mm. I think that that's something I hope will give comfort to those listening who might be on yeah. that journey. What a privilege it is to be able to share that moment with you all. And don't get me wrong, having a 16-year-old boy brings a whole host of other challenges, but I am very proud of who he is becoming. So as we come to the end of this podcast, as you know, I always ask my guests to read a letter to their younger self and invariably I and they cry. I found it too hard to pick just one. So I asked the team which letter I should conclude this Christmas episode with. The resounding answer was split between David Hyatt and Anna Lewis, founder of Sketchy Mama. So I will treat you to both. Before I go, I wanted to thank you all for your support this year. You truly are the wind beneath my wings. And every day I feel eternally grateful to be surrounded by this incredible creative community. It's you who will change the world, who brings colour to grey. Never forget that. So keep going. Have the most wonderful Christmas and New Year. And I'll see you in January. But for now, I leave you with the incredible wise words of Anna and David. Oh, and make sure you have some tissues at the ready because you'll need them. This is a letter to myself. Poor grades at school doesn't make you a poor thinker. It just means you didn't remember the things that weren't important to you. Don't worry. Uh, learning will begin when the school bell rings for the last time and it's never going to stop. People who talk a lot often, often say very little. Confidence is often misplaced. Judge people by the quality of thinking, not the volume of their words. Remember, being quiet is okay. Being an introvert is okay. Being shy is okay. And sure, it's good to talk, but only through your mouth. Stop worrying about what other people think. You remember that time when your dad dropped you off at school in his old beaten up car and you were cringing because the cool kids might see you. 
you are going to regret that. The cool kids are generally the least brave. They're all obsessed with fitting in. Um, but in time, you will learn not to fit in. Find something that looks like work to others, but play to you. That will allow you to get good at it. You will repeatedly be told you are as stubborn as a mule while growing up. You might think that is a bad thing. Later on, you will realize that all your successes came from sticking at it. It's not a race. Don't be in such a hurry to achieve that you forget to enjoy the ride. The destination is seldom as fun as getting there. There are no shortcuts. Do the work, keep doing it. Do something meaningful, just takes time. Be a long-term thinker in a short-term world. Hang out with optimists. Even if things don't work out, it's still gonna be more fun. If you have to sell your time, make sure you are learning. Once you have the knowledge, leave. Be yourself. It's going to take a daily practice, but no one else will ever, ever be able to be as good as being you. Hello, little seven-year-old Anna. I am just checking in to say hi and give you a heads up on how life has panned out so far. Hopefully, if we get a good innings, we're only halfway through our current planet Earth trip, and so it seems a good time to reflect on a few things. You're probably in your pop-up office setup, Crabtree offices, that you made from some old desks that mum got hold of somewhere that someone was chucking out. Mum is creative and will fuel that in you. I expect you're organising your sticker and scented pen collection, dealing with design commissions for clients of the Teddy variety. You will obtain a flip-top roller decks and stationary desk organiser from somewhere. I think it's a free gift granny got from a catalogue. Anyway, you think it's the best thing ever with its multifunctional miniature organisation compartments and a double pen holder. It will sit proudly on your desk, acting as a booking system alongside the red phone you have yanked in through the door, straining the curly wire. Have you made an appointment? You choose the Snoopy Savings Building Society account because you get the best stamps in that one. You get such satisfaction rearranging them to see which colour combinations work best together. You will use these skills and colour combos in time to come, especially that blue sky that really popped out against Snoopy's red kennel roof. Simple, but pleasingly graphics, then and now. At primary school, you will be given a tiny bit of yellow ribbon folded and pinned by a safety pin to act as a badge for coming third in a sports day race. You're so glad you came third as you liked your colour ribbon best. It was a beautiful primrose yellow that glowed even more yellowy when you held it up to the sun. You still think about that ribbon a lot now, but have never quite found that exact match of that particular yellow yet. Colour is so powerful. You, I, we love it. It's magic, neat joy. Well, firstly, I can tell you not much has changed today work-wise, except the clients are now actual humans and usually pay in real money rather than cola cubes and sherbet pips. You have actually ended up with quite a cool studio that has a few Snoopy mirrors dotted around, but more of that later, because it took a right old merry dance to get back home to this again, us. School is good, simply because you make some really close friends you hit the jackpot there. Nurture and cherish these friendships because they will sustain you through the good times and the bad and be your biggest cheerleaders through every decade. There is something very special about having a long history with friends. They understand the child and the adult in you. Sooner or later, time marches on and you have to get on board with the old chronological time train hurrying you along and making sure you are keeping pace with everyone else. It's weird, this whole chronological time system that humans have to slot into. Do the exams, go to college, get a steady job, 
and get a house and a dream kitchen that needs upgrading every five years. It is handy to keep time so as not to be late for dentist appointments and the school run, but in many ways it's quite limiting. It forces you to keep up with everyone around you, even though you may be completely different types of people with totally different needs. Don't fall into the chronological time trap. Forget about your age, as it will only become a cumbersome barrier of all the reasons you can't do something and tramples over the quiet, honest voice inside you that knows that you can. You will go to art college as you imagined, and it's wonderful, but it won't actually lead to a proper job that you can find in the job section, and that is where your 20s will be difficult. You'll head off to London loaded with creative energy and ideas, but have no clear direction to go in and will not quite fit in anywhere, creatively speaking. You'll spend most of this decade knocking on creative doors in between telesales and bar jobs. Flashes of chances will happen in glamorous advertising companies and enough meetings with important people to know that you've got something. But what is this something and what do you do with it? You will feel lost in every sense. Eventually, tired of never quite being in the right place at the right time, you will come home to Cornwall deflated and demoralised. One day, you will be sitting in an Asda car park in your late 20s, recently dumped by a boy, comforting yourself with a family-sized bag of cheese balls, wondering where it all went so horribly wrong. You had planned to conquer the world. You will have such a lump in your throat. You are not choking on a cheese ball, <laughs> but all the failures and disasters of this decade, where you tried so hard to be successful, but just went around and around in circles. <laughs> At almost 30, you get a job in a reprographics department doing people's photocopying. It's dull, but you're surrounded by paper and pens and you begin to connect with a middle bit of you again, us. You sort of have your own office again now with an updated Rolodex. They call them computers now. One day, as you are hunched underneath a photocopier machine, fixing Paper Jam 2368, you will notice a set of feet come into view and a little voice asking you if you fancy a curry one night. Boom. Here is the person that will change everything for you. Quiet and unassuming, you have found someone who will become the steady foundations of everything good in your life that is now to come. Your safety, your harbour, your home. Ray will encourage you to just pick up a pencil and draw again because he sees the middle bit of you, the ageless bit, the magic bit. Finally, through just drawing for yourself, you have found your creative path. You will have your little girl and she will make you want to be a better version of yourself for both of you. She will be the reason you say, yes, I can, even if you're so scared inside. Your love for her will be the fuel to keep you going when the hard times come. One day you will decide to make some personal drawings to document your time as a new mum just for your little girl when she is older. You will call it Sketchy Mama and share a few pictures. People seem to like them and it sets you on a good path. That's the lesson here. Just draw what means something to you and the rest will follow. Don't worry about fitting in with someone else's brief. You already have your own brief inside waiting to come out. You will experience devastating loss in your life that almost destroys you. There is a place though between the almost and the total destruction where another thing exists if you have the courage to hold on. It's a tiny whisper at first, but it gets stronger. It's your life force, your spirit, your soul saying, I'm willing to regenerate, I'm willing to heal. This life is worth living, I'm ready to go again. It's true what mum said, stay close to nature and watch it regenerate at every turn. Never forget that you are nature too 
and to continually regenerate is part of the plan. Precious things are never truly lost. They infuse into you and you carry them everywhere in the most sacred part of your being. I wanted to tell you something quite cool I have discovered, little Anna. Now I'm in my 40s, although I look much bigger and older on the outside and have been known to wear elasticated trousers on occasion, on the inside, I don't really feel any different to seven-year-old you. Stay aligned with the middle bit. It has nothing to do with chronological time. It's a totally different department. It's timeless. Keep drawing your pictures, because if they matter to you, they are sure to matter to someone else too. We are, after all, just seeking connection and a sense of belonging. Lately, you have had a bit of external success, getting cards in fancy supermarkets and stuff like that. It's fun and a little ego boost out on the school run, but none of that represents deep lasting success. Success is filling up your biscuit jar with Tunnock's tea cakes and sharpening your pencils ready for a good day at the office, then home for egg and chips with the people you love. One day you'll be invited on the podcast of a lady who has inspired you so much on your journey. You will worry beforehand that you'll say the wrong thing, talk too much, but I don't think she'll really mind because you have found people like you, free spirits that can't be put in a box. Enjoy this moment in your shepherd's hut on a cliff top. Get the kettle on, switch on the twinkly fairy lights above your head and know that in this moment you're exactly where you're meant to be. Take the risk, tell the story, it's worth it. Before you go, don't forget to head to holly.co to be in with a chance of winning a brand new Dell Technologies XPS laptop and a whole host of other goodies. And if you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.